0: All right, folks, open up your Bibles to Ruth, chapter 4, verses 13 to 22. That's the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. And, you know, we certainly didn't coordinate it this way. We've been planning this series on a character study on the life of David now for several months. It's a sermon series that will carry us through until the first Sunday of Advent. And I got to tell you, as a staff, I can't remember the last time we were so excited about a sermon series. Last night, the staff pastor's group chat was lighting up. It was like, life of David, let's go! And go season and full send and all that stuff. But anyway, we're, we're really excited to move through the life of David. It seems somewhat appropriate, and this is the part we didn't plan, that we would start a sermon series this Sunday on King David, when so many around the world are paying tribute to and considering the construct of monarchy in ways that maybe you haven't really given much thought to in your day-to-day life. You know, when God set aside his people, he set aside a form of governance that was the best. That was theocracy, where God would rule over his own people as their king and ruler. But then as an accommodation to their desires and the nations who, who surrounded them, God gave them a king, an earthly king. And you know the story of God's people and their different rulers and kings. Some were good, some were bad. But at the end of the day, they all foreshadowed, either positively or negatively, God's forever king, Jesus Christ. And so that's something to just hold on to as we move through this series, this whole construct of monarchy. Now, most of the accounts that we're going to go through over the next few months will be from 2 Samuel, but today, I want to start in an odd place. For a character study on the life of David. We're going to begin in the book of Ruth, start before David was even born. If you've been around St. George's for a while, you'll know that we preach in a way that's called expositional or expository. Typically what we do, as you noted in the second Corinthians series a couple of weeks ago, we literally just go verse by verse by verse through books of the Bible and we allow the logic of scripture to shape the logic of our thinking. And then we apply that to our day-to-day lives, believing that Scripture is in itself relevant. We don't make it relevant. It's God's Word. And then we live under it and apply it. That's sort of our framework of expositional preaching. Now, over this series on David, it's going to be slightly different. The preaching is not going to be explicitly expository because there's just these massive sweeps of narrative that we have to cover. Instead, we're going to find that our, our moving through the life of David will be something called allegorical. You know what I mean by allegorical? We're going to take the life of David with its different moments and different events, and we will see how those moments and events can then translate and apply to our lives today. But more particularly, we're going to look at them allegorically because each and every moment is going to show us Jesus In some of the moments of David's life, we will catch glimpses of faithfulness. And those will point ahead to the faithful one who is perfect, the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll foreshadow Jesus. In other moments, we're going to see David and other characters who, in their failures and in their shortcomings, cause us to lament and cry out and long for something better. A longing that can only be fulfilled in... Jesus. So That's the framework of allegorical preaching, and that's what we're going to do. There are three things I want us to glean today as we look at the account of David's great-grandmother and great-great-grandmother, Ruth and Naomi. The first thing I want us to note is that David and all of us, we are a product of our family of origin in ways that we don't really even understand. It's in varying degrees and in diverse ways. You know, it's, it's something that perhaps you didn't even come to terms with until you got married and saw your family through your spouse's eyes. So you grow up in your family of origin and you presume that everything is just normal and the way that everyone must do it and then you marry someone and you discover, oh wow, that was actually kind of weird. But it's the only relationship that you've ever witnessed in in your family of origin, and so you assume that that's just the way things are. It shapes you, your family of origin. It's true not only of your immediate family of origin that it has an impact, but it's also true of your genealogy, your ancestry. We all, to some extent and to varying degrees, live out of the stories of our ancestors. We inherit Traits, for good or for ill. And so maybe you're sitting here this morning and like me, you would say, I have a godly heritage. I have ancestry lined up for generations of people who loved the Lord Jesus Christ and were devoted to him as his disciples. You can say that this morning, thank God. And acknowledge that so much of who you are today is shaped by things for which you can take no credit. Right? That's, that's what I think when I reflect on this. I have generations of godly men and women in my family. You know, it goes back to my grandpa, Colin Glenn, who had inherited all of the weight of his ancestral heritage, and so, like all the Glenn men up to that point, You know, he was a um, drinking, maybe philandering um, Irishman who fought in bars and all that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? And then died with heart attacks in their 40s. (laughs) Go figure. Um, That was my Grandpa Glenn. But then he went away for the Second World War, and he fought in the Second World War. And having encountered so many horrific atrocities during the Second World War, he came back to his family, and he found himself at loose ends. And it was in that moment of desperation that Colin Glenn, my grandpa, repented, threw himself on the mercy of Christ, and changed the trajectory of the Glenn family. That's that's part of my ancestry. Another part of my ancestry on my mother's side, my nana, Amelia McMeekin. Despite her married name, her, her maiden name was Amelia Baum, she was a German woman, she was a Lutheran, right? My, my Nana would describe herself in two ways. She was German and she was Lutheran. And then I think she'd say she was a Christian. But anyway, um, this was her godly heritage. And I remember moments of crisis where my Nana would be in our home and hearing her calling out on the Lord in her mother tongue of German. And I didn't understand a word she said but you could sense that she had a personal and profound relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here I stand before you this morning, and I am an inheritor of this godly tradition, this godly ancestry, a family of origin that shaped and formed. It became like a a bedrock for myself and for my brother, and, and God willing, for our kids as well. You see how that works. Maybe you would say the same thing this morning, Say, "I have a godly heritage thanks to this relative or that one. But maybe you're sitting here this morning and you say, you know, my family history, my ancestry, my lineage is the furthest thing from anything godly. Well, if that's you this morning, I want you to know the good news of the gospel. You are more than the sum total of your DNA and your genetics. You're never less than, right? If you're a man, you're a man. If you're a woman, you're a woman. Sermon for another day. But you are more than your genetic DNA. You're not bound by it. Even if you have an ungodly heritage, perhaps that's because God is calling you to be the one that turns the tide. Perhaps it's your repentance and your commitment to faithfulness to God that will create a whole new trajectory for your family so that someday your grandchild will stand like me and tell the story of Colin Glenn, the one that turned it around. Listen, we are shaped and formed by our ancestry and our genealogy in ways that we don't even understand With that in mind, we start our character study on the life of David, Israel's greatest king. And we're going to start this character study two or three generations before David was even born, depending whether you're looking at Ruth or Naomi. This is the story of two remarkable women in the Bible, Naomi and Ruth. In fact, so remarkable are these women that our Old Testament book is named after one of them. You see it in front of you, Ruth. And this book is in our canon of Scripture for several reasons. I want to point out just two. The first reason that we have this book of Ruth in our Bible is to ensure that the story of these godly women would never be forgotten by God's people. The story of Naomi and Ruth. Um, I trust you have it open in front of you. I want to move just quickly through it. Reader's Digest, you know, condensed version. Look at Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. This account of David's great-grandmother and great-great-grandmother, chapter 1, verse 1, begins in in the days when the judges ruled. So you know the history of God's people. They were in the land. God had not yet granted them a king. The judges were ruling over the land, and it was a time of great darkness in the life of God's people. In fact, flip one page to the left and look at the last verse of the book of Judges. These are the days of Ruth okay, and Naomi. And it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his eyes. Postmodernism and relativism, long before there was such thing. And so the account goes that there was this woman named Naomi. And within a very short period of time, great tragedy befell her. Her her husband died, and both of her two married sons also died. Now, Now, in our modern context, we lose the gravity of that moment because we have things like social safety nets. But back then, when Naomi had her husband die, For her, that meant that she was without income and would be certainly destitute without a husband. She'd have to turn to begging on the streets. Or perhaps after her husband died, her two sons would look after her in addition to looking after their wives. And then they die. And so Naomi does what is the honorable thing. She goes to her two daughters-in-law and she says, listen, You both need to go and find new husbands so that you don't starve to death and die. I release you from anything. Go. And the one daughter-in-law does just that. She takes off and presumably starts a new life with a new man. But look at what Ruth said. Ruth chapter 1, verse 16. But Ruth said to Naomi... Even at risk of my own peril, I will not abandon you, Naomi. Ruth makes the faithful choice. Right? And so we're going to unpack that in a moment. Let me just finish with the story. And so Naomi and Ruth then, they launch out on this life together in the land of Moab. They're trying to live their lives. Um, They they come across a field, and they notice that it's a time of harvest. And they notice that at the end of the day, when the when every, the, the crops had been harvested, there was some always left over in the field. And so Naomi says to Ruth, Ruth, why don't you go out and pick up some of the leftover scraps so that we can eat? And so Ruth does that day in and day out. It just so happens that those fields belong to a man. Do You know who that, that man's name was? Boaz. Great name if you're having a boy over the next year or so. Boaz owns the land and he looks out over the land and, and he sees Ruth out there gleaning the harvest, what's left over, and she was a good-looking girl, right? And Boaz looks at her and he thinks, man, she is hot. And he thinks, um, he, he pulls his workers aside and he says, hey guys, just when you're, when you're reaping the harvest, make sure you just leave a little extra behind, right? He's kind, and so the story unfolds, and Naomi intervenes and sort of pulls some strings, as mother-in-laws are wont to do, and she orchestrates the fact that Ruth and Boaz would end up together. And Boaz then goes on and marries Ruth, and they conceive a son, and that son's name is Obed. Okay, that's, that's as far as we're going to go in the story for now. Let's unpack this for a moment. If the first thing that we see in the life of David is that your life is shaped and formed by the trajectories of your genealogy in ways that you maybe don't even understand, what that means for David, before we even get to his life, is that his genealogy is marked by faithfulness. This account of Ruth is captured in our Old Testament to set Ruth out in the Old Testament as the mother of Obed, the grandmother of Jesse, and the great-grandmother of King David. The second reason that this account is in our Old Testament is to enshrine the humble origins of Israel's greatest king, David to show the stock from which he comes. You're going to see later on in the account when Samuel sets out to find Israel's second king, that David isn't even the tallest, most handsome, or most likely to become king out of his brothers, out of his own brothers. But his spiritual DNA is strong. And while man may look on outer appearances, we're told that God looks on the heart. See, this account in Ruth shows us that King David comes from a genealogy and a lineage that's marked by self-sacrificing, Lord God-trusting faithfulness embodied in one woman named Ruth. It's here to show us what God can do with that kind of abandon and trust. See, Ruth, at this moment of choosing to be with Naomi, she stakes her entire life and her entire livelihood on nothing other than the provision and trustworthiness of Naomi's God. She doesn't try to take matters into her own hands and fix it. She says, Wherever you go, Naomi, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. You see the faith and the trust in that? She should have gone and found herself a new man. But instead, she placed everything on the faithfulness of Naomi's God. Well, that's a picture for us. It shows us David's DNA, and it sets out a model of excellence for us as well, something to which we aspire. That's the first thing I want you to see in this account. The second thing I want you to see is that, gosh, friends, as you move through the biblical account, there are these pivotal moments, okay? They're they're almost like cusps. And on those cusps teeter the entire future of humanity and salvation history. these moments, these cusps in Scripture hinge on the faithfulness of one person. When we read the account of Ruth and Naomi, we discover that all our Lord God is looking for from us is faithfulness, a willing to trust Him, so that through that trust, God can work his saving purposes in humanity. Move the ball further down the field. I think about one in particular. You know the account in Genesis 22 where God tells Abraham to offer up his only son Isaac as a sacrifice. Do you know that account? The binding of Isaac? And Abraham is in a a catch-22. He's in a real bind. On the one hand, if he offers up his son Isaac and kills him, then he has no means for the promises of God to continue through his lineage. But on the other hand, if he doesn't offer up Isaac, he disobeys the command of God, and the entire covenant is shattered and eradicated anyway because it was based on faithfulness. So what does he do? Well, you know the account. God uh, told Abraham to offer up Isaac. Isaac is bound by Abraham and put on the altar, and as Abraham's about to plunge the knife, God provides a ram. And then God says to Abraham, the angel of the Lord says to Abraham. You've got to feel the moment, right? Like it's all riding on this. What's Abraham going to do? Choose faithfulness or choose his own means? He chooses faithfulness and trust in the Lord. And so the angel of the Lord says to Abraham, because you did not withhold your son, your only son, the son that you loved, By you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. You see, there are these moments like this one in Ruth in Scripture where the entire weight of salvation history and the eternal outcome of humanity rests on the faithful choices of one person. Well, perhaps this morning you're faced with decisions. Maybe you even find yourself in a dilemma. I see it all the time. People come into my study to talk and pray, and they ask, R.D., what should I do? And they feel like their decisions really matter. They don't want to make the wrong ones. Well, let me give you some personal, practical counsel. When you have decisions to make, like Ruth, in that moment, the first thing you ought to do is to pray. The second thing you ought to do is read your Bible, or better yet, be so well-versed in regular Bible reading that when it comes time for that moment of decision, your thought matrix is already shaped by biblical values. How about that? So you have a decision to make, and you want to you pray, You want to search the scriptures for principles that will guide your decision-making process. Some of them are simple, right? Like, if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, hey, should I be unfaithful to my wife? Well, that's pretty simple. Scripture would say no. If you're sitting here thinking, hey, should I do a better job of pastoring and leading my wife and in my home? Well, the biblical answer is pretty simple. Yes, right? So pray, search the scriptures for principles, And thirdly, seek godly counsel. Now notice, I I didn't just say wise counsel, but wise godly counsel. Because the wisdom of God is different than the wisdom of man. And while sometimes there are good worldly principles that are just true because of God's general revealed character throughout all of creation... There are times in your journey where you have moments of decision and God will call you to do something that makes no sense. Ruth. It should have made so much sense if God said to Ruth, "Uh, yeah, you know what, dip, take off, you got to look after yourself. Um, She'll fare for herself and I'll look after Naomi, but you need to go on. That would have made sense. But God called Ruth to do something that was illogical. Sometimes God calls you to pare down your army so that his name will be glorified. And this is why when you're making these decisions, you need to pray, you need to read your Bible, and you need to seek wise, godly counsel. Other Christians who will pray with you and help you to make these decisions in these moments. And this leads to the most important practical application. You know, if it's, if it's true, that you never know when one of your decisions is the cusp of a moment of eternal import, you never know, then as Christian men and women, we must always make the decision that's shaped by trusting the Lord. Okay, that's, that's the final tick box In your decision making matrix. Is this decision shaped by trusting in the Lord God? Well, does that mean that Christians ought to trust the Lord and therefore their life should be marked by passivity? No. Marked by contrarianism, right? Against everything, because I trust in the Lord. The answer is no. It means something deeper than that. It means that each and every one of our decisions at every point in our life must be shaped by faith and not fear. That's what it means to trust in the Lord God, whatever your decision. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 to 6. Maybe you learned it in Sunday school. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he, Will direct your paths. See, this is the final checkbox in the decision making process for God's people. Are you trusting in the Lord God? That's your only job. It's not your job to figure out the direction of the path. Proverbs 3 5 to 6 says it's your job to make sure you're trusting in the Lord, you're not leaning on your own understanding, and you're acknowledging Him. He's going to direct the path. And perhaps this moment of decision will be one of eternal import as well. Just like Abraham and just like Ruth. This is God's calling for every one of his people. God's work done in God's ways. That's what Hudson Taylor said. And so we have Ruth, who is King David's great-grandmother. She is a model of this kind of faithfulness. And she shows us what God can do when his people trust in him day by day. Ruth and her life and the outcome of her life shows us what God can do when Christian men and women trust in him when the chips are all on the table and it really counts. Now listen, to be sure, Ruth's faith, like ours, was probably not perfect. There were moments in her life, no doubt, when she, like us, failed. But in the moments of faithfulness, she points ahead to the faithful one, Jesus Christ. All right, let's, let's keep moving with this second point. Our second point is that there are pivotal moments that hinge on the faithfulness of one person. So let's put ourselves in Ruth and Naomi's situation. All of these things transpire. Obed is born. And then Naomi and Ruth die. Do you ever think about that? They died. Never knowing the cosmic eternal importance of their faithfulness. They knew that their trust in the Lord God had provided for their temporal needs, for food and for shelter and for relationships, and they found comfort in that. They knew that the son had that the that the, the Lord God had granted them a son or a grandson named Obed. They knew that their grandson and great grandson was Jesse who became a shepherd but there's nothing particularly notable about that is there Ruth and Naomi would have died having never heard the name David They didn't know that their great grandson great great grandson would go on to be the greatest king of Israel And here's another personal practical truth that we can glean from David's ancestry Faithfulness and trust in the Lord is enough. In one sense, faithfulness is the reward of faithfulness itself. If you get to finish your life well, if you breathe your last breath saying, I trusted in the Lord, he was my all in all, then you will have had a life that was filled with meaning and purpose meaning that it is sufficient to justify your existence and make sense of all the chaos that surrounds you. And who knows? Maybe God will do something miraculous and outstanding long after you're dead and gone because of your faithfulness. Ruth and Naomi didn't live long enough to see King David. They were just faithful. And that was enough. So this morning, if you are feeling like you are abandoned, God forsaken, if it feels like your faithfulness has not produced anything outstanding by way of purpose or meaning, This is a reminder that you and I do not need to create our own purpose. We don't need to turn our faithfulness into something grandiose. All we need to do is just be faithful. You may or may not see the fruit of that faithfulness in your lifetime. It may be a grandchild, a great-grandchild, or a great-great-grandchild from now. Just be faithful. You don't know what God will do with that faithfulness. Our second point is that these, these key moments hinge on faithfulness. Our third and final point, I want you to see that Ruth is the picture of your salvation. If we end where we began, we remind ourselves of why we're starting this series on David three or four generations before he was even born. Who were David's people? What was his stock, right? What was his ancestry? Well, it was Ruth and Naomi, and so David's stock was marked by faithfulness. And you know, by, by the way, that's that's not just an Old Testament principle. When Paul writes to the young minister Timothy, he says, Do you know Timothy? I remember the faith of your mother Lois and your grandmother Eunice. Part of David's stock is this ancestry of faithfulness. And with a, with a great-grandmother like Ruth and a great-great-grandmother like Naomi, it's little wonder he became Israel's greatest king, right? The man after God's own heart. And all of this is the ancestral lineage of David. David. But now take stock of your own family tree. Perhaps you would look at it and say, it's not the trajectory of faith that I would hope for. Or maybe it's even more personal than that. You don't need to look back at your family tree, but simply to look in the mirror. Reflect on your own life. You're confronted with moments when your faith flagged When you took a big swing and you missed, you failed. You see David's ancestry of faithfulness, and you look at your own self and you pale by comparison, both by lineage, ancestry, and your own life. And you start to feel this sense of dread. Am I on the outside? Has so much been lost? Oh, friend, remember Ruth. This Gentile Moabite widow who was grafted into the people of God by faith. And not only grafted into the people of God, in some vague sense, but brought right into God's family. See, you have to to make no mistake. Ruth was faithful. In her moment, she trusted in God. But ultimately, when you read this account in Ruth, it wasn't her faith that saved her and grafted her into the family of God. It was the faithfulness of Boaz. Boaz, her kinsman redeemer, See, Boaz bore the responsibility to help and to save Naomi and Ruth. Let me say it a different way. Ruth and Naomi's lives were spared by the mercy, kindness, and compassion of a faithful man. Do you see it starting to emerge? Their faith, Ruth and Naomi, caused them to turn to him and trust in him. But their faith didn't save them. It was the faithfulness of Boaz that saved them. He was their kinsman, redeemer. And friend, if you're feeling on the outside today because of your own lineage of faithlessness or your own life of faithlessness, and you realize I am outside of the family of God, don't miss this. This is the gospel, the good news for you this morning. You look at yourself and your family and you feel like you come from humble beginnings at least. You're confronted with your own failures and lack of heroic trust in God. Yet, God in Christ has made a way for you. He is your kinsman redeemer. He has, like Boaz for Ruth, taken responsibility for helping you, saving you, redeeming you. He has changed your family tree. Once you were the offspring of rebellious stock, traitorous, treasonous to the king of the universe. You were hopeless and helpless. You were outside of the family of God. To put it in Ruth and Naomi's term, you were without a husband or a son. You were destined to starve and to die. But now, like Ruth... You've been welcomed to the table. You've been given the family name. You are in the family of God. You've been adopted into the family marked by faithfulness. Your spiritual DNA has forever changed. And so now you can boast in an ancestry that includes all the heroes of faith. You're no longer a Moabite Gentile. You're now someone who can call Abraham father. Not anything that you've done because of the faithfulness of another, just like Ruth. And so, as we conclude this opening sermon in the series on the life of David, I want you to think about David this shepherd boy who would become Israel's greatest king. And as we move into our passage next week, remember that David comes from a a lineage and a genealogy of faithfulness. And as such, he's the inheritor of a spiritual DNA, so much of which he can take no credit for. But it was Ruth's faith that set the course and the trajectory that would Form the backstory of David's life. It was Boaz, her kinsman redeemer, saving her by faith and furthering God's purpose of salvation history. Conclude by reading Ruth 4. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife, And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more than seven sons to you, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood came, gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed father Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Still have your Bible. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. Verses 1 to 6. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez by Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. My gracious, there's another whole sermon in that name, isn't there? And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. This is the family tree of David. This is the family tree of Jesus. And friends, if you have repented and returned to the Lord, this is now your family tree too. Because you have a kinsman redeemer. You've been saved by the mercy and the faithfulness of one. Behold our trustworthy God. Let us rejoice in our kinsman redeemer. Let's pray. Father, we marvel at your sovereignty. That while we were rebels, you didn't just write us off or crush us. That you sent your son to die for us. To save us. So that we would no longer be strangers and aliens, but we would be adopted into your family and given the family name. I pray this morning for everyone who's feeling on the outside that you would grant them the faith to believe this. To know that they are now part of a family of the faithful because of Jesus. I pray this in his name. Amen.